teaching that the Buddha offers after he achieves his enlightenment is known as the setting the wheel in motion. He has just become enlightened and he's, he encounters a group of individuals he had practiced with and he says to them, life the way most of us live it is stressful. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are stressful. Associating with difficult people is stressful. Being separated from the loved is stressful. Not getting what we want is stressful. So that's pretty, he's pretty much referring to a large part of human experience and basically saying it's stressful. Two typical ways that people live that make their lives stressful. One is by constantly chasing after pleasures that are common, readily available, but unprofitable. They don't, they don't create lasting happiness. And the second way is a life of deprivation based on fear, cowering from life, not embracing life, not ever taking risks and so forth. In my favorite teaching, the Atadanda, the Buddha says, looking around at the world, I experienced dismay. I saw that people lived like fish floundering in small puddles, competing with one another over everything for no reason. And seeing that everything boiled down to competition, all I could feel was discontent. So that was basically what he saw when he looked around at the world. So what explains these lives of either constantly craving things that don't produce happiness or living these frightened, uh, timid, uh, being terrified of taking risks and embracing opportunities? Well. Uh, there's so many different perspectives we could use. My background is in psychology, and uh, uh, so I try to tackle these questions from as many different perspectives as possible. And today I'm going to look at it from the perspective of evolutionary psychology, uh, which is um, uh, become a major field in producing analysis of human behavior. Some of the big wigs in it are Robin Dunbar, uh, Geher, I forget his first name, uh, Richard Wright, uh, Stuart Williams, and so forth. And uh, the books tend to be, of all of the, uh, the tomes of psychology, and I I've, have a background in everything from neuropsychology to attachment theory, to dialectical behavior, but of all the all the modalities, I have to say that that evolutionary psychology is one of the easiest to read. So, if you're ever interested, uh, the work of Robin Dunbar is just easy to jump into. Um, essentially, the insights of this is that uh, many species wind up suffering, and uh, 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 meeting uh, needlessly early deaths even is due to what's called uh, the genome lag or to make it more friendly and the w phrase I'll be using is evolutionary mismatch. What is evolutionary mismatch? Well, it essentially describes our species. Uh, evolutionary mismatch is what happens when the traits that evolved in an organism or species to prosper in one environment become disadvantageous in a different environment. In other words, something that we developed that allowed us to survive well in one setting now leads to suffering and distress in a different setting. There's two ways that this kind of mismatch can happen. The first way is you could take one organism and put it into a new location. So you drop a, a plant or a fish or a mammal into a uh, different uh, ecosystem and many of its traits that were adaptive and selective to its 
original system will now kill it in the new setting. But another way that happened with our species is called temporal mismatch. And that's what happens when the setting an organism has developed its traits to survive in has become radically different than the, tra than the setting where the traits developed. And that's what happened with our species. To be specific, our species evolved from the earliest um, human species progenitors, Homo erectus and Habilis, if my memory is right, around 2.5 million years ago, up until roughly seven, uh, maybe 200,000 years ago, I should say, the beginnings of Homo sapiens. Throughout that period of 2.5 million years, all of it, up to the last 7,000 years, were spent in hunter-gatherer collectives, largely in sub-Saharan, barren, very, uh, in locations that had very sparse food supplies, and were as different from today as you could possibly imagine. So in the short course of 7,000 to 10,000 years, which is when we exited living as hunter-gatherers and foraging our foods, to the way we live today, which is the way most of us forage to, for food, is we go to Whole Foods. And we go to the aisle where it is, and we're like, okay, I'm going to have the vegan cupcake and, the, you know, the quinoa and the kale salad. Great. I've just foraged for food. Well, for our evolutionary ancestors, foraging meant spending days in danger, alone for long periods of time, looking for food that would probably not materialize. In fact, if most hunter-gatherer collected or uh, clans were made up of about six to eight adults, and they had a bunch of children. So if there was, say, six adults, five of the adults would go out hunting and foraging, both men and women. The jobs were equally allocated. And of the five that went out hunting and foraging, four would come back empty-handed. And one would luck out and maybe stumble upon a newly dead animal they'd drag back. Or maybe they would uh, find some fruits or vegetables. Maybe they would find something that was edible. And so these little clans were completely egalitarian and everybody engaged in an economy that was based on sharing and bartering, which meant there was no money, there was no symbolic capital, there was no accumulation of wealth. The only thing that kept you or I alive if we lived back in hunter-gatherer collectives were the fact that we had developed a good rapport with the other people in our clan, that we were liked, in other words. So the food was sparse, tools were pretty much your, the entirety of your possessions because you or I would have to be able to move at the drop of a hat because at any time, a location's food supply could completely drop, could be used up, and we would have to move. And the only thing we would be able to take with us is what we could carry, and that was very often the, a couple of tools to make shelter, a couple of tools to cook and eat, you wouldn't probably bring with you even clothing. You wouldn't bring anything else. So food and acquiring tools became extremely important to our survival. And they were incredibly rare. And so the brain developed massive dopamine rewards uh, to encourage us to go out and to continue to look for something that was so rare. Now, why is it, was it so necessary to produce this massive dopamine rush, this boost, this sense of power and reward and joy and uh, pleasure for acquiring a tool or acquiring some food? Well, it was incredibly dangerous. 
It was incredibly dangerous to leave the hearth of six other adults and to wander off alone uh, looking for food, foraging for supplies, because you could be killed at any moment. It's impossible to describe how, or to conceive of how dangerous life was for our ancestors. But to give you an example, I, I, I was looking at some of the statistics. Um, the most dangerous place to live right now is pretty much Caracas, Venezuela, right now in terms of crime and uh, the, the incidence of violent deaths. Right now, that rate, at this point in time, is roughly around 45 deaths per 100,000 people. Anybody have a guess how many deaths per 100,000 people would happen in our ancestors up until about 10,000 years ago? What? Very close. 750. In other words, take the most dangerous place in the world where you'd have to constantly unguard and you would constantly feel uh, there would be a lack of safety, whether it would be that or there's other areas, certainly times in the Belgian Congo, etc., as have extremely dangerous. But multiply those times 20. 20 times the death rate, and you have an idea of what it would like to just live up until 10,000, 20,000 years ago before the advent of modern agriculture, city-states, etc. So it was exceedingly dangerous. Not only were there predators and other clans that would just as happily kill you and steal just your day's food, but the chances of disease... And loving and losing someone that you love because they 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 got cut accidentally or because they broke a leg or because any of the things we can easily heal today were not available then. So every single relationship in your life was subject to immediate loss. So that's the environment in which our brains were developed. We live in brains that are suited for that environment. We are not living in brains that were developed where today in New York there's probably something like five violent deaths for 100,000 people, if that, where the chances of you being speared by a rival clan on your way to the sub, to the L train, is pretty minimal unless you're just being a jerk to someone, I suppose. I mean, we are not, we are living in an environment that is completely unsuitable for the brains that we were developed. We are living in world 5.0 with brains 1.0. It's like essentially we're using the very first Mac, the, what was it, the Mac Plus, and we're trying to use the internet with it. So over the course of this evolution, the left hemisphere addressed uh, acquiring tools, focusing attention on uh, food, and the right brain developed a specialty in maintaining th threat uh, alerts, vigilance, and communal attachments. And the bottom-up characteristic of the right hemisphere is largely associated with the emotional distress that we tend to live in today. Um, so what are some of the human prime examples of evolutionary mismatch that's the, that is indicative of so much of our suffering? Well, the first is our dopaminergic pathways. Again, dopamine was created to uh, provide a reward for doing something that was extremely difficult and unlikely to be achieved. Essentially, it was a reward for risking your life to leave the hut and go out alone and look forage for some kind of food, which was put you in grave danger. So to entice us as a species to 
spread our genes and to survive long enough to reproduce, the brain developed a reward circuit from the ventral tegmental up that gives us enormous amount of pleasure when we acquire a tool, when we acquire food, when our tribal status is lifted because that was important to our survival as well. Dopamine was not supposed to ever be something that was readily available because it's so pleasurable in such a short-term boost that if it became readily available, people would do nothing else but hit it again and again and again. Well, guess what rats do when you offer them cocaine? They do exactly that, and so do many humans that I know. <laughs> Dopamine, again, was meant to be an uncommon event, but today you can stimulate it simply by buying something that's sweet, by turning, by pulling up your phone, because actually looking at a screen activates dopamine. You can turn on Netflix and that makes you feel connection with other people that triggers dopamine. You could gamble. You could go on Amazon and, and push buy. And just clicking that buy button will activate, will give you a dopamine rush. You can simply... Uh, Go on any computer, I suppose, and watch porn, and you will raise your dopamine levels. You can easily raise your dopamine levels anytime you want right now. It's available to you at a mouse click. It was never meant to be that way. This leads us to make the tragic mistake of trying to solve right hemispheric issues that concern how well attached we are to our tribe, how securely bonded. Whenever we start feeling negative emotions which are there to say, hey, we're lonely, we feel disconnected, and we should connect with other people, it's so tempting instead to turn on Netflix, to look at social media, to look at one's phones for messaging, because what happens is when we do that, we get a 30-minute mood boost associated with dopamine. Dopamine was never meant to be the solution to social problems. But that's the way we now use it. And the tragedy is when we keep using stimuli, when people become addicted to any activity, it means they're chasing the dopamine rush. Dopamine lasts for a very short term and it habituates very quickly. The amount you need to stimulate dopamine at first from eating, shopping, watching TV, whatever, uh, exponentially goes up. So we need to do it more and more and more to get the same 30-minute boost. And when dopamine goes away, when we've been stimulating it for too long, it produces cortisol, the stress neurotransmitter, which is secreted by the adrenal gland, especially a hormone too. And guess what? We wind up suffering. So then that makes us want to go back to the addictive behavior even more. So our current culture has offered us pain-free, risk-free, ever-available triggers of dopamine that entice us to try to solve the problems of, that were meant to be solved by connecting with one another for security and for emotion regulation. It entices us instead to just take something, buy something, eat something, snort something, and really quickly we think that, that, that it's, the belief is, is that that 30-minute that rush will somehow solve the issue. So that's one of the main results of evolutionary mismatch, the dopamine. But the second one is that we have needless levels of chronic stress. So, for example, despite the fact that we uh, are safe, Having moved from very small egalitarian clans where you would really get to know the people around you and really develop safe, secure, robust, resonant, interpersonal relationships where you felt that those five or six people that you spend every day with 
were invested in your survival and cared about you? Because not only did they care about you out of they knew you and they developed attachments to you, but they were somewhat dependent on you as well to keep the clan going. So there was a lot of interest that we would nurture and soothe and take care of each other and, and be with each other when we were sick. Today, we live in lo very often isolated home lives where we come back after work to sing, you know, to uh, single apartments, uh, studios, there's no one else there, or maybe there's two roommates, but maybe we don't get along with them very well, or maybe we're just we just go into our rooms because it's awkward in the common space and then we tend to isolate. That's a significant trigger, just having emotional isolation. But it gets worse because your, our ancestors, our brain was developed to live in a climate where in our entire lifetime, we would see maybe in addition to those six people, in a tribal gathering, we'd see 50 other people. That's in the total of our lifespan. So over the course of the 30 years you would live, 35 years the lifespan on average was, you would see maybe 50 people. And that's the, the number of people that you will have to worry about. So your brain is, our brains are set up the dorsal inferior cingulate cortex we know from Lieberman and Eisenberger is set up to create feelings of robustness, uh, happiness, uh, mood regulation via serotonin and endorphins in connecting with people and caring about what those other people think about us. But now we live in a climate where we see 50 people in the first hour of our commute. I mean, probably hundreds. You probably see 50 people in the first hour outside of your apartment. And guess what? We're still living in brains that are set up. If you look at a stranger, you don't know this stranger, but it, that stranger gives you a kind of irritated, disgusted look because they're unhappy, they're late for work, they don't even really see you, but you see that look. And our brains are literally set up to go, holy shit, this really sucks, I'm in trouble. Because for our ancestors, it would be trouble. If we met somebody, it meant that somebody in our tribal structure who knew somebody else, who probably knew all of our distant relatives didn't like us, and we were kind of fucked. We're not meant to live in a world where we see 30 times the amount of people every day that our ancestors up until 10,000 years ago would see in their entire lifetime. Now multiply that again and again and again, and we are constantly being activated. The dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, which modulates serotonin and endorphins as being down-regulated virtually each time we think we get a dismissive glance, a negative feedback, any kind of uh, shunning or looking away. And the opportunities of that are logarithmic in terms of our ancestors. So that's another example. Along with that, another that example is, that has to do with stress and uh, chronic stress is emotion contagion, which is to survive, we had to essentially take on instantly the emotional states of those we were connected with. If you came home and everybody in your clan was anxious and worried, you didn't ask questions. You didn't say, hey, what's going on? Bad day, Joe? No, you would become anxious because the threat was probably present and everybody was in a state of alert because they had detected a rival clan that could kill people instantly. So we're set up to literally assume the emotional states of the people who surround us. Today, Many of us go into workplaces where people are needlessly stressed out, anxious, and unconsciously our right hemispheres, the whole work of Bruce Hook goes into the mechanisms, but we are constantly assuming the physiological, somatic stress states of the people around us. 
we're simply not meant to live with people who are needlessly stressed out all the time. Fear plays a needlessly huge role in our decision-making. Now, why is this? Well, in our ancestors, virtually any major shift in life, relocating in a nomadic clan was a matter of life or death. So getting it wrong was a fucking huge big deal. Everybody could starve. If you move to the wrong location, you, your, your clan might be killed by a rival clan or by predators or by disease, or that you might move to a location where there wouldn't be any food supply or the weather would be intemperate. So making any decision was a big, scary event. Weighing when we make decisions, the, sorry, the amygdala tends to, when we visualize places, tends to activate fear needlessly in when it comes to today, where moving from New York to San Francisco or vice versa is frankly not going to kill you. Living, leaving a job for a, for, to do your art for a little while, it ain't going to kill you. Leaving a relationship is not going to kill any of us. Getting into a relationship, cohabitating, leave, whatever, no decision that we will ever make carries the weight that the decisions that our ancestors had to carry with every decision they made. So consequently, making a change in life activates the sympathetic nervous system, the amygdala triggers the hypothalamus, the message goes down the sympathetic nerves to the adrenal gland, cortisol is released again, and then we start to feel fear. And that makes making decisions exceedingly needlessly difficult for us because today we feel that same early mechanism that's being triggered when we think about oh, should I go on that job interview or not? Maybe I won't like them. Maybe I should just stay at my job. Yeah, this is a really bad idea. I think I'm going to do nothing. Any change can trigger that same exact structure. So fear essentially is hardwired into us. And so this brings up, again, the Buddha's two observations. There's either, on the one hand, the life of constantly craving pleasures, that's the dopamine pathway, or the life of the uh, not embracing, not taking any opportunities, the risk-averse small life of just choosing, you know, to do nothing. And that's the life where we are activated by chronic stress and constantly experiencing fear when it comes to decisions. The Buddha said the way to solve this is one should avoid these extremes and choose a middle way that leads to wisdom and freedom from these settings, these old settings. This is established by understanding what causes stress and putting it aside, i.e. chasing after short-term pleasures to solve emotional issues, engaging in harmless speech, action, and work, i.e fortifying our social relationships so that we produce serotonin and that regulates our moods and learning to develop calmness within that's distress tolerance so let me translate that into today's language and that's what's going to lead into our meditation given the proliferation of social interactions that can trigger us to feel stress woundedness um, sense of rejection. It's important to learn how to auto-regulate our sympathetic nervous system, to down-regulate us from uh, activation to back to a state of rest and digest. How do you do that quickly? One, what the Buddha taught, focus on your breath and extend your exhalations. Now why? Why, do you, why does your exhalations matter? When you breathe in, your sympathetic nervous system is ac actually activated and that actually uh, raises the level of, I um, can't remember, trace cortisol. But when you 
breathe out, the longer you breathe out, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system and your vagal nerve secretes ACTH, acetylcholine, and it actually down-regulates your heart rate, it lowers your blood pressure, it allows you to relax. So simply extending your out-breaths is the fastest way to regulate when we've become needlessly feel attacked, defensive, under threat, because our old structures of our brain feel unsafe. The second is to pull attention away from threat cues and reorient to safety cues. Well, what's that? Very simply put, it's in our evolutionary priming that when we feel someone's rejecting us, when we feel someone's being critical or harsh or judgmental, it was in our evolutionary best interest to keep focusing on them because they could be about to kill us. Our life would be in danger. So we're primed to continually focusing on the eye contact and the body movements of somebody who's being rejected. That's the last thing that you should ever do if you're in the presence of a coworker who suddenly says something that's critical or a roommate who says a snide thing about how you clean up after yourself or whatever. The first thing to do is break the eye contact and look for safety cues. Look for an exit. Feel your body. Reorient to the space around the person. Remind yourself that you're safe. Simply put, but difficult to do because it's so steeped into us to keep monitoring when somebody's being... You probably have known this by now, that when, when you're in a room and with 12 people and 11 people are really <coughs> happy to see you and one looks like, eh, who do you think you'll be looking at all the time? Address social wounds before engaging in any activity that's pleasurable too often. I know it's tempting when we feel lonely or isolated to pick up a piece of cake or ice cream or turn on reruns of Game of Thrones or whatever, but it doesn't solve anything and it simply primes us to continue the, the misuse of the dopamine pathway. So if there's, you feel that urge to engage in a compulsive behavior, first pick up the phone, connect with someone, talk to someone. That's what leads to emotion co-regulation. Talk to someone that you know that is uh, most likely to give you a safe, secure setting where you can talk about your feelings with them, share with someone, in other words. That's, we're set up to to down-regulate us from sympathetic to parasympathetic when we connect with somebody who maintains a serene, accepting glance, a, you know, a smile, a welcoming. We, we essentially neurocept their physiological state of being. And if somebody pays attention to us without any hint of judgment, that co-regulates us back to a sense of security. And lastly, when it comes to making big decisions in our life, Learn to strip out the needless fear. Well, how do we do that? And it's important to do this because it's your right hemisphere, the ventral media of your right hemisphere, that makes your decisions. And the way it makes decisions is by feeling skin valence in your body when you visualize it. what choice. Should I stay here or should I go there? It visualizes both. And the choice that creates the strongest pleasure or the least fear in your body, you'll go with. That's how you make decisions. If you want to read about it, Damasio's work and uh, uh, Descartes' error. So most of us, when it comes to embracing opportunities, experience a needless amount of fear and hesitate and stall because all change in us through to our evolutionary mismatch activates the sympathetic nervous system, which tightens your stomach. So when you visualize a choice you have to make before you do it, visualize all the friends you have in the world that really care about you and will still be there in your life regardless of the choice you make. Lo lengthen your out breath really long 
And then, after you establish a secure base, then hold the two choices, images in your mind, then feel into your body. What you've just done is essentially diminish the articulation of the ancient expression of needless fear in you. So that's enough. I've probably given you far too much shit to uh, mull over. But now we're going to practice this stuff in a meditation. We're actually going to lift our operating systems out of 1.0 into 2.0 and beyond. So find a uh, really comfortable seated position. And just reminding you when it's time to leave to please uh, throw money in the basket so that we can survive. If you don't have cash, um, you can use uh, Venmo, that's Dharma Punks with an X NYC, or you could use uh, the PayPal, which is on the website, dharmapunksnyc.com, or the podcast site. But if you have cash, that's what keeps us in business. So... Closing the eyes and just take a moment to allow your body to wobble from left to right, front to back. Essentially, just be a little bit of a top and then without any cognitive intervention at all, just allow your body to come to a stop. Don't try to think or control the way you sit. Just allow your body to find what feels like a resting place for it. Why we do that is because your left brain, which is cognitive, only really has awareness of the primarily the right side of your body. But interestingly enough, your right brain is aware, synaptically connected with both sides. So it's far better at balancing you. And... Just take a moment to lift your chin a little bit, just enough to counteract that, that uh, temptation to <clears throat> have your head slouch in front of your chest. And so we're going to start by priming our settings towards a greater state of ease and comfort. So take a full in-breath through the nose and squinch the muscles of your face while you breathe in. Tight mouth, pinched mouth, squinched nose, squinched muscles around the eyes, furrowed brow, and then as you breathe out slowly, so soften the muscles in the brow, soften around the eyes, and take the corners of your mouth and try to extend them to the side. Interestingly enough, the, the wider the mouth, the more likely you are to incline towards thoughts of safety. So it doesn't have to be a grin, but just a release any tension that contracts the corners of the mouth. Try to keep them spread apart. For a second in-breath, lift the shoulders up and start to rotate them back. And as you breathe out through the mouth, Drop the shoulders and the arms. So it's like you're putting down the heaviest bags you've ever carried. And that you've been lugging them around the airport. And finally, you get to a place where you can put them down. And now you have your arms and your shoulders can relax. They're totally released of any obligation. What we've done is we've opened up the 
vagal break, which is largely situated around the uh, sternum, the vagal nerves around the cardiac region. And so another state of I'm secure. When species open up the chest, they feel safer than when they tighten their shoulders and contract. And then third breath, bloating the belly as you breathe in, like you're pulling the oxygen in by the belly. The belly is inflating like a balloon to the breaking point. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, soften the belly like the gentle softening of the belly has expelled the air. And of course, we'll come back to this soft belly, which is key to reducing stress, needless fear. And just incline now your breath to be the out-breath, to be as long and subtle and smooth so that you're not pushing out the air, you're just releasing it. And the breathing is happening into the softest belly imaginable. So for the next period of time, we're just going to sit here in silence. And just open your awareness to every sensation that is actually occurring right now. So all the sensations in your body, especially the breath, the sensations of inhalation and exhalation. The sounds drifting in from the street, birds, the fan above, cars, people talking as they pass by, the sounds of a wet late spring afternoon or evening. Even the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Monitoring any feeling states. The sudden tightening of the stomach or the chest. Or perhaps a shift in attention, noticing when we drift away. When the mind is... present, when the mind becomes foggy, when we become tired. And the only thing that's not a part of the practice is 
pulling attention away from that which we normally focus on in our lives, which is our thoughts. So when a thought about later this evening or an event from today, a general theme about your life, a concern, unresolved issues, There's no need to be upset if you find you're lost in thought because when you realize that you've already returned, you've already on the the journey home. And if you can spot a thought as it starts to materialize, just say hello to it and then return your awareness again and again to the sounds, the body sensations, the experience of the present, cultivating a state of not needing to go anywhere, do anything, just landing in this moment of your life without any desire to be anywhere else.
So at this point, let's move on to practice deactivating the uh, hardwired fear settings when it comes to making choices and decisions in our life. So bring to mind, if you can, any unresolved choice, decision, could revolve around work, living, relationships, family, any choice or decision you have to make. And the more that seems to be at stake, the better, as those will, by definition, activate greater amounts of fear. So just know what that choice is. And then, for a moment, what we're going to do is first repeat the exercise of full in-breath to the belly, soft exhalation, long, full in-breath again to the belly, soft release, softening all the muscles in the belly. Full inhalation, long, gradual, soft release of the belly. Just feeling the muscles in the belly very pliant and open. Not a worry in the world. And then while you have the soft belly, bring to mind the image of someone who has exhibited care or kindness or acceptance, someone who you associate with care and compassion. If no one comes to mind, visualize a figure or somebody who you might not have met a Tara Brock-like figure or a, another figure that you associate with kindness, compassion, non-judgmental demeanor. Just have that image looking at you with a smile, conveying that no matter what you choose, no matter what happens, they will be available. Softening the belly and then putting a hand, if you'd like, very gently in your heart center. That helps engage the vagal. Break, slowing down heart rate producing, inclining us to the parasympathetic. And now what I'd like you to do while you hold your hand on your heart and you have the soft belly is visualize one of the two possibilities or three possibilities even in the decision you have to make. Whether it's staying, going, maintaining a relationship or leaving a relationship moving to a new apartment or not, whatever, visualize one choice. And as you visualize that choice, just feel what it evokes. See if there's either a slight sense of release or a slight sense of constriction
And then again, bringing to mind the image of the person who cares unconditionally, softening the belly, long exhalation, And now bringing to mind the second image associated with another possible outcome and feeling into your body. Feeling in. what sensations are present now. Weighing the somatic markers that express all the concerns of your right brain. So let go of that image (laughs) and just note now if there's any inclination towards one choice or the other. In a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl and try to bring with you through the rest of the evening the settings of safety and ease that we cultivated, focusing on your exhalations, softening your belly, releasing and opening up the chest. Bring that that new operating system into the rest of your life.